If you are vulnerable to psychic damage from roguish language, stay away from these gibbering mouths. But if you intend on listening to this podcast about enriching your fantastical group hallucinations, you're too far gone already. Brothers, both DMs and players. I'm the one who can literally sleep through rifle fire, Travis. And I'm the one that couldn't find his way to town when he was a teenager because he fell asleep in the car every day. Yeah, it's advanced. Whatever medical condition you have was advanced. I just don't know if it was so much of a medical condition, so much as just staying up late every night. Every night playing video teenagers? games? Yeah. yeah. That's how we did it. Welcome to the Hook and Chance podcast, granting your dwarves stilts for the tactical height advantage for incredible games. We are the stilt walkers. <laughs> the advanced clan of dwarves that have one foot stilts <laughs> that just get them up to that eye level area. They're made of stone. It's heavy and it slows <laughs> them down. Anyways, that's what we're talking about today. We're doing dwarves, the squat, salty, and one-dimensional fantasy race. Yeah, they they tend to err on the side of one-dimensionality. We took a look at the common stereotypes of dwarves, and we thought that we could dive in pretty deep to some of those details. Yeah, and I mean, we all know a general sense of dwarves, that they're drinkers and fighters, and they're hardy, and they're stout, and they're miners. They yeah. love gold and jewels, but... They love their songs. There's There's definitely more to it. Like, yeah, there's lots of lore in D&D to find and uh, explore. Yeah, I mean, between Forgotten Realms and Eberron, you can find more lore out there. But I don't know, sometimes not even that lore supports the reality of what a dwarven clan would actually behave like. And one of my biggest pet peeves with dwarves is that for some reason, they've always become axe wielders. Gimli <laughs> cemented this idea that dwarves would favor double-sided axes. But tell me... Underground. Uh, yeah, an underground civilization. Where? Why would they go, oh, the axe? No, they have pickaxes. <laughs> they have all kinds of other cool shit that can be made into weapons. Why would they go for a tree tool? Yeah, one dwarf just came back and he's like, check this out, guys. <laughs> it has... Two blades. Take a look at me when I put my foot up on this rock and hold it like this. <laughs> I'm a badass. <laughs> so so flexing is pretty much where double-sided axes came from. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> Check. Okay. <laughs> so moving on. Today, this episode is all about dwarves, dwarven society, and I think whether you're a DM who wants to immerse your players in a richer dwarven world and really give it some meat or you're a player that wants to play a dwarf and refer back to things that have a little bit more depth and detail to them i think this episode should be handy what are we going through today we're going to start with archives of the ancients where we're going to get into dwarven government and then we're going to hop over to morden's forge where we're going to talk about some useful tools and tables that we developed and then we're going to wrap it up by using Temple of Inspired Hands to talk about tools that we love. And this one in particular has a very dwarven feel to it. Yeah, yeah. So let's... Uh... This is the Archives of the Ancients, where knowledge is unearthed to add wild insights to our world. Okay, so we like to dive deeper into thought experiments around how a dwarf society 
might actually function in a fantasy setting. One of the interesting things that I've always kind of thought was a little bit odd was the fact that dwarves always seem to be Scottish for some reason. Yeah, I think it's just a fun voice. That's what it all boils down to. Yeah, because they don't really borrow a lot of other things. I don't know. I guess some people portray them as wearing maybe kilts. <laughs> yeah, um, playing bagpipes. As we mentioned, little other things like axes don't really seem to be a natural weapon for dwarves. It doesn't make a ton of sense. So I think it's especially easy to fall into a pit of stereotypical dwarves, which is kind of why we love doing these thought experiments, is just to really kind of extrapolate on why and the the foundations of where you would get to an eventual dwarf, a really fleshed out dwarven society. While still keeping it really exciting to play and fun, but super logical as we like to make things. And it just allows to go into much deeper role play when you can think of your dwarven adventurer and also have an intimate knowledge of the world that they come from. How they might react to certain things is influenced a lot by the culture that they come from. So we thought the most apt place to draw inspiration specifically from was Iceland. They're an entire country full of calm, collected, tranquil ass kickers, and they're all super tough. (laughs) Yeah, that parallels so well with our thought of dwarves of being, you know, chill, but don't mess with them because they are tough. So we'll draw some parallels between Iceland and how we can use it to inform our fictional dwarven culture for better role playing and lore building. So we're going to go through government, societal structure, and law in this Archives of the Ancients. And I'd just like to point out that we are not historians or experts (laughs) in any way, so... (laughs) We're going to do our absolute best, but we're definitely going to butcher some cool history. Go do some reading on some of Iceland's really cool history. And what makes it especially cool is that they have Icelandic sagas which are actually a written history that is blurring the lines between fact and fantasy. Because in the same uh, Icelandic saga that describes real historical events, they will also reference like trolls and, and giants and stuff. And it's really wild. Yeah, it's the stories that they've passed down for generations. And it just, it's so rich and interesting. So a little bit of background on the foundation of Iceland, giving some context to this entire country of chill badasses. There's a few conflicting bits on who got there first, but most agree it was by accident. <laughs> and when they got there, they were mostly disappointed. <laughs> just a history of early explorers who got to Iceland and went, well, shit. Well, I mean, when you're on a boat for that long, I imagine you're just looking for something that looks something like home. But no, when a Norwegian guy named Nadad saw this barren place, he named it Snowland. And, and then he beast out. <laughs> he was just like, no, nope. <laughs> there's nothing here, guys. Let's go. So yeah, settling this harsh and beautiful place, I imagine was pretty friggin' tough. Lots of fate not a lot of people lasted and it was basically like every single year the island shook like a bedsheet and flung everyone that couldn't hang on that wasn't <laughs> tough enough to hang on back to wherever the hell they came from because it's a land of, of ice and fire literally there are volcanoes and earthquakes and 
all it, kinds of insane geographical shake ups It's so cool. And it, yeah, at first glance, I would imagine as a settler, as somebody who discovered this place, I would get there and go, well, this ground is rock hard. There's not a lot of topsoil to grow things on. Like it, it's, it's a difficult life to try and eke out there. Yeah. Fields of lava, literally. <laughs> so, okay. So the first thing that happened during this golden age of settlement of Iceland is they created the All Thing, which is their parliament, which still goes today, and they would hold it at Thingfeller, which is a national park. The Icelandic language is very complex and to simpletons like us, very <laughs> difficult to pronounce. So here, here's the real pronunciation. Thingvellir. And one more time for if you didn't get that first time. Thingvellir. Yeah, it's that <laughs> difficult. It's uh, very challenging for my tongue to do that. So they have the oldest surviving parliament. It was established in 930 AD, and they would hold these annual gatherings to decide on legislation, dispense justice, make decisions for the future. They'd have individual cases, they'd make new laws, they'd amend old ones. And all free people in Iceland could attend, but primarily it was the clan leaders that would show up, and they would gather at Law Rock, an epic huge pedestal for the law speaker to stand at. And the law speaker would recite all of the current laws from start to finish and just keep going. It was his job to memorize every law. And Law Rock existed in Thingvellir, and Thingvellir's most unusual landscape is caused by tectonic plates pulling apart. <laughs> How much more epic does it get than that? So it's this uh, it's this kind of chasm that runs down the countryside. And yeah, literally, the earth is just coming apart <laughs> where these folks decided this is where we're going to pass some ass-kicking laws. Heck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, there's a lot of things that we can pull from that to apply to dwarves. Yeah, so shifting over to dwarves. They love laws. We all know that. They're really strict about their rules and traditions and laws. And if you want to take that extra step, they would probably have an event that is very much like the All Thing. And this event would probably be super popular and it would be looked forward to all year by all dwarves. They're just always talking about it. It's like the Super Bowl. They're talking about what laws are going to be made. They're talking about who's going to get sentenced. Yeah. <laughs> They're having pre-game parties <laughs> and post-game parties. They're and fantasy drafts. Yeah, fantasy <laughs> drafts of who's going to get the axe this year. Uh, you know, there's... There's teenagers that are getting horny in the back and they're making out. It's it's a real, real show. And law speakers are the huge celebrities of these events. So they're super revered in a dwarven stronghold. Everyone respects them. You do not cross the law speaker. The law speaker just stands up at the front and recites every law verbatim, which is very, very appropriate to dwarves. Probably with a huge dwarven choir behind him or something like that. Oh, yeah, like a tabernacle kind of like... <laughs> to shake your bones while yeah. you're witnessing the laws. So it would also probably be pretty friggin' grand. Just like Law Rock and the separation of the earth, the dwarves would probably keep a chamber that they do this in pretty natural. You know, they love carving the earth, but I think in a place like this with so much um, history and reverence, 
that you probably want to respect the raw natural power. So you could just lean into any geographic elements of a place like that. Things like massive geysers, which exist in Iceland too, for timing. In Iceland, you can show up at these geysers in an exact time and you know that it's going to go off. So they could kick off the event with a big geyser. They could change topics with geysers. You could also do basalt columns for speaking platforms, which are these rock formations where it's just a column that stands straight up in the air, super angular, and they all kind of connect together at different heights. That was on the Black Sand Beach. Yeah, yeah, among many other places, but that would be an epic speaking platform for a dwarf. Oh my god, yeah. And while leaving it fairly natural, you could have the dwarves design the room in a spherical shape that picks up and channels sound to certain places, amplifies any sound that happens in the room. Totally. And that would also encourage the kind of discipline from those that are in attendance, like it would command that respect as, I mean, if you had a spherical place kind of like that... uh, that subway tunnel that you can whisper in the corner and hear it on the other side. Yeah. Yeah. Like you would be able to audibly hear anybody just kind of whispering. So you've got everyone's attention because if they're screwing around, the whole procession stops and everyone (laughs) focuses on you to deal with it. Yeah. It's all about respect and reverence and, and that kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Upon entering the chamber as a part of that respect, you could have, each one of the dwarves that are part of the procession strike a massive shield or something like that and recite their local matra. would be a good matra? The iron remains would serve as a reminder that when something is created well, it lasts. That's a good, uh, yeah, good call. I think that really also would establish the mood for the entire culture of dwarves. Like, the all thing was kind of an interesting event to show up to because it really kind of set the tone for the rest of the year. Okay, everyone, what are we going to do now? We're going to add new laws. We're going to really understand how we're all going to stay alive on in Iceland. And very similarly, dwarves need to refocus their attention on what are the goals of the entire stronghold? What are we going to try to achieve? Yeah, and just keep them focused on that hardiness and pushing forward. And to revere the gods, they would probably have a Dorvan prayer at the start or Dorvan prayers throughout, just to keep everyone respectful of that too. All praise be unto Moradin. Heck yeah. <laughs> and they'd probably end with a good old feast and some drinking. Mm-hmm. Dwarves gotta eat. So an interesting thought here is the next time a party is visiting a stronghold, maybe they show up on this critically important of days or weeks or months, however long this yeah. lasts. <laughs> and these events could be a great setting for any dramatic story moment. Hell yeah. A party could be in trouble with dwarves in their laws. They could be representing dwarves in some major task. Oh, yeah. Stand on the uh, stand on the geyser <laughs> and speak. <laughs> or be blasted forth <laughs> by Morden's fury. If you're found guilty, you get, uh, you get clean from the wrong direction. <laughs> <laughs> and there's probably lava there, too. Yeah, because there's always lava. <laughs> Cool. Well, let's move on to their societal structure. So again, going back to Iceland, um, a vast majority of all pre-Iceland Nordic history and society had some serious autocratic leanings, like all king-based societies. But when Iceland was actually settled, there was 
kind of an outing of kings. They were just like, you know what? We don't really need kings anymore. So they did away with the structure of typically kings or jarls and chieftains underneath, and then carls, which are kind of landowners in the middle class, and then thralls. So you've got this hierarchy. Well, they kind of just removed the top part. And mostly the bottom part, too. Yeah. They had uh, 97% of Icelanders today, for example, identify as middle class. So they kind of kept that strong throughout their history. Clans were not ruled but represented by the wealthiest and most capable and charismatic of their people. So it wasn't necessarily a birthright. It was if you didn't do a great job representing the people of the, the farmers that you represent, they would go with someone else who better represented the whole. Baseline for democracy. Pretty cool. <laughs> and then Iceland also has a very interesting and structured naming convention. And we thought this was particularly dwarven as well, as they, they just kind of deviated from a lot of the idea that you would get a family name and you just kind of keep going with that. And so... An example would be, if I were Icelandic, my name would be Travis Seanson. Because your dad's name is Sean. And you're literally his son. Your dad's yeah. name is Sean as well, by the way. <laughs> I'm aware. I, you were the example. <laughs> and if I had a daughter, and let's say I named her Sigrid, she would be then Sigrid Travis' daughter. And she could choose to take her mother's name as well. Yeah. As part of that. And I believe that's actually where the naming committee comes in and presides over any of those kind of name changes to make sure they fit within Icelandic naming conventions. Yeah. And the naming committee actually is pretty interesting because they've even got a list of pre-approved names. So if you're naming your child, you can just look at the list and that name has to be on the list. If you have a name that you want to name your child that's not on there, you have to basically contact the naming committee and they'll see if it fits into <laughs> their language and the conventions that exist. So all of this is kind of interesting. And we took it again in that dwarven direction. And we thought, okay, so a lot of dwarves have this image of having a dwarven king. There's always that image of a of a dwarf sitting on a throne made of gold and blah, 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 using, wearing a huge helmet that's uh, cartoonishly large. But this kind of didn't really fit with our idea of dwarves. So the highest importance is their role and what they do for the whole. If the entire culture is centered around how to make that stronghold its strongest it can be, the highest level of governance might be made of three parts, kind of like spokes on a wheel. You've got the clan representatives, where clans are a familial line, the oldest and wisest, but always the most capable, represent a clan. They can be replaced quickly and easily by the clan. You've got law speakers, which we've already talked about. And you've got guilds, or a vocational craft, of which there's a lot in Dwarven culture. And the Grand Master represents these guilds. Those that basically reach the highest level of wisdom and experience get to represent it. And that would make a lot more sense, I think, for Dwarven governance, is because you've got a democracy, you've got all of the wisest people making these decisions, and it's not a familial thing. So, you know, kings and or autocratic kind of governance was always about family lines. And that doesn't necessarily mean that that family member is the strongest or wisest. You always end up with a dumb grandson that <laughs> wants to screw up the whole society. Yeah. So. so then dwarves would have guilds that really 
play a strong part in their society. They've got guilds for everything. And it's one of the most important roles that you play. You could have an armor guild all the way down to like a hinge crafter. And I had this concept for a character that was just, uh, you know, an adamant hinge lover. <laughs> and he would inspect every single hinge that he came across outside in the general world to inspect it for its uh, <laughs> craftsmanship. Craftsmanship. Fixing of, of uh, hinges. Fixing doors and chests that he comes across <laughs> <laughs> so because dwarves are so long-lived and interested in this part apprentice journeyman and master which come from our typical levels don't really fit because they don't have the complexity that dwarves would have yeah so we thought that a more accurate depiction of this for your fantasy dwarven stronghold would go something like this you've got a learner who is starting down their path of learning, and a teacher or kind of like a general practitioner. So once you kind of graduate from that teacher general practitioner, you have to choose a vocation to really invest yourself into, be it hinge crafting or armoring. So then the teachers determine the aptitude and learn to new techniques from the grandmasters who've achieved the uppermost level of skill and experience. Then once a dwarf actually chooses a focus, they graduate from a teacher and they start down that apprenticeship journey all the way to grandmaster, hopefully one day. And to add further complexity to each of these levels, you could have things like the hardness of metal to determine your strength within that level of apprenticeship. So an adamantine apprentice would move on to an iron journeyman. Got it. Yeah. So then you have kind of that stronghold structure. Now you've got your law speakers, your clan representatives, and the guild masters, if you could actually consider how a dwarven stronghold might be structured, it makes a lot more sense with this in mind. So if you see it like three layers. So in the center is the main city with the city prime and all of the other guilds and kind of support roles. And you would have that central law chamber there as well. And then all of the related guilds would have a city that they contribute to. So some guilds that might be related would be like agriculture, forestry, hunting, and fishing. And those would be at the top. That would be at the top level where access to the outside of the stronghold might be easiest. Then down at the very bottom, you might have mining and smelting, maybe engineering for the entire structure of the, the stronghold and, say, metallurgy guilds in a city at the bottom where all the digging and the, the dirty work is happening. And then surrounding your center prime city is the secondary supporting guilds and cities, which would make it the widest and most populated web of cities and guilds. But it's things like uh, textile and clothing, brewing and bakers, weaponsmiths, armorers, healers. Yeah, so all of those, yeah, kind of supporting roles. And you would also probably have some of those intellectual services as well, like scribes and uh, historians and artists. Carvers. Yeah. yeah, totally. And then when you get into the dwarven naming conventions that you could use, typically you'd name your uh, dwarf something like Tolbin Giantbeard, which is a pretty sweet name. But considering the dwarven priorities of who you are, what you do for the whole, how good you are at doing it, and who your family is. So it would be structured like your first name, your experience with a guild, and your clan name. So an example of that might be Nodgrig or Hirta as your first name. 
and then you would follow that with Iron Apprentice of the Miners Guild of Clan Surefoot. So you've got this regal-sounding name that in a, a very short period of time, other dwarves can establish really where you are and what you do, and they, they know a lot about you simply based on that. That'd be actually way better for me to use at gatherings. <laughs> Because then it just skips all those preliminary questions. Yeah. <laughs> the, the first five minutes of conversation yeah. <laughs> is pretty much done with. They get to the point. I think one of the coolest elements of this is that if you are a learner, you're working towards that grand craftsmanship, that your name and your salutation actually would change over the course of your life. And so you'd eventually just kind of keep morphing into a bigger and better dwarven badass yeah a better version of whatever dwarf you are and, and that, that's respect that's all of dwarven culture in one single name and it would be kind of funny for a dwarf to be at a social gathering and introduce themselves and then have those preliminary questions asked and be like didn't you hear me <laughs> <laughs> that's my name <laughs> you asshole you weren't listening to the last yeah so then getting into the law of dwarves I was actually learning about this really interesting way to think about world building and law within culture, which is the tightness or looseness of a culture. So Michelle Gelfand, a cultural psychologist, was featured on the You Are Not So Smart podcast, which is where I heard her. She published a book called Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, How Tight and Loose Cultures Wire Our World. So tight cultures have a lot of rules which people violate at their peril. And loose cultures are more relaxed in their expectations, and they're more forgiving of people who deviate from the rules. There's a lot more depth to this idea that can inspire laws for any other kind of world you want to build. But we thought that was great, and we're leaning towards tight for dwarves. So Iceland has some of the lowest crime rates in the entire world, which is commonly attributed to their 97% middle class, which is really interesting to think about, because... Since the very beginning of their settlement, it's persisted that way for a lot of reasons. Once settled, it was divided into four quarters, with nine chieftains per quarter, making decisions by majority vote pretty easy and passing judgments and laws at the all thing. The most common sentence was outlawry. So very basically, outlawry was you were banished from society. If you screwed up, you were banished, your property was confiscated, you could not be fed or sheltered by anyone, and wherever they went, they could be killed without penalty by anyone who saw them, which meant they had a really hard life. It wasn't a death sentence. But it's kind of just like, we don't care about you anymore. Yeah, you're done. You shat the bed too many times. Yeah. You're gone. <laughs> and then lesser outlawry is just where the guilty party was banished for a certain amount of years. Yeah. So they, they usually went with something like three years where their property was not confiscated, making it possible to return to a normal life after that banishment. So that was really interesting. And we also looked into kind of the five elements of judicial punishment, which spun us off on a whole nother tangent, <laughs> which was really wild. But essentially, in a very short form, you've got five elements, which are deterrence, which is convincing your citizens to abide incapacitation, which is basically removing the offenders through either uh, prison, prison, basically, rehabilitation, reassignment, and rebuilding of the person themselves, the offender, retribution, which is eye for an eye, or, or hand for a loaf of bread, or whatever you want the to death call penalty, it. really. <laughs> yeah, that too. It's just that idea that the person has been 
punished appropriately. And then the final one is actually restoration. So making amends to the person that you have wronged. And this got us thinking about dwarven justice. So how would the dwarves actually dispense justice and what would matter to them the most? So the function of the each clan member is so integral. Everyone's got a role. So you don't want to use retribution. You don't want to weaken the clan. Yeah, if you kill someone, they can't contribute to the rest. You're really kind of weakening that group of people. So you'd probably focus heavily on deterrence and restoration. You get bumped down to a subclass or stripped of your name until you earned it back. Deterrence being, yeah, that idea of having a tight culture in general is... My my thought behind that would be dwarves probably wouldn't have a lot of laws that are don't do this. They would have a lot of laws that are do this what you should be doing as a person. And that's kind of how that tight culture fit. So when punishment does have to be doled out, you've got probably a fairly minor punishment. We were talking about restoration. That feels like it probably fits the most. So the dwarf would then be likely stripped of their rank or bumped down, started on whatever your apprenticeship track is again, while you served the person that you wronged in some kind of like favor system yeah any downtime that you have might now be exactly to that person yeah totally uh more medium punishment might be 10 days in prison which doesn't seem long but to a dwarf you're falling behind on your roll by 10 days i feel like that is a pretty harsh punishment yeah 10 days in the pit (laughs) get in the hole yeah like if if you were taken 10 days out of your job you know, the your rival that is also going to be the Grand Master one day, <laughs> you know, they are now 10 days ahead of you. And in the grand scheme of 700 years of a life, you know, even that 10 days might feel like an s- extreme setback to a dwarf. Yeah, and especially if you're not given less duties or responsibilities in your role. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. And then I think the most extreme punishment would be that banishment that the Icelanders practiced. A dwarf might be booted from a society and kind of branded as uh, clanless and strongholdless. And that might even lead to the names that we typically see with dwarves. Yeah, like the just the simple, this is my clan, this is my name. Yeah. Totally, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's a dwarf that does something unforgivable, but they don't want to completely strip you of your potential. And killing them isn't an option because that would erase the entirety of potential of another 400 years that that dwarf might be alive to achieve great things like even found a new clan or, I don't know, go on merry adventures with a group of... uh... (laughs) (laughs) And then like the Icelanders, it's got a year value attached to it. So you come back and then you plead your case. You show them what you've learned and why you should be let back into the clan. So you would have that potential to restore your name, restore your clan, or, you know, if in the most extreme circumstances, you were just banished forevermore and you were never allowed to come back to your stronghold. Yeah. Which would lead to a lot of the adventurers, a lot of the (laughs) dwarven adventurers that seem to be clanless. They're just roaming the world. And so chaotic. Yeah. (laughs) Like they're rebelling against what they've been raised in. And and of course, you're going to have dwarves that don't fit the norm. So totally fits. I think there's a lot of really interesting role play opportunities there. When a dwarf is out there, he's he's been banished from his clan, 
comes across a town where they're holding some kind of justice, uh, like a public execution, that would seem really wild and extreme and just be like, why are you killing this person? <laughs> they're, you know, that's that would be a little bit uh, intense as far as retribution would go. Yeah. Murder from the leaders? I don't understand. Yeah. yeah. What kind of chaos is this? So maybe your player character has a really rich backstory that includes failure or a minor failure that resulted in a three-year exile like the Icelanders would. That gives you a really cool motivation to learn or to bring something back of worth or value so that you can get back in. Yeah, so that would add to that restoration. Hey, I brought back these riches to my clan. I'm I'm buying my way back in to try and make the clan stronger. I'm ready to come back. And then maybe part of a character's story, they realize that they don't really want to go back because there's a great big world out there. Also, three years is a long time to go adventure. I don't know yeah. a lot of adventurers <laughs> who, who last three years of dungeon delving. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, I think that pretty much wraps this, uh, wraps this up. Excellent. I think we covered some good stuff. Yeah. Let's go to Morden's Forge for a really helpful tool in naming that dwarf like we just talked about. Yeah. This is Morden's Forge where raw materials are reshaped, honed into tools and weapons for the most incredible of quests. So in this segment, Morden's Forge, we are fleshing out some of those ideas we came up with in some tables. Yeah, so we wanted to build something that could be useful in a game to try to figure out some dwarven naming schemes. We are talking about how you could start with your first name and then your expertise and then your like level of expertise, and then your clan name, and that's your full dwarven name. Because it makes sense for dwarves to have a really long, intricate name as well. Yeah, I like totally. That. Yeah. So in doing so, we came up with these different experience levels, but then they didn't feel quite right because they didn't have that like dwarven feel. Yeah. Because they didn't have a dwarven language. When you're just saying journeyman, that doesn't really feel. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't feel deeply dwarven. And one of the coolest resources really was how in-depth Tolkien wrote about certain languages. Like Tolkien just added so much richness and depth to all of the languages that he made. But dwarven wasn't complete. It wasn't certainly as complete as, say, Elvish. And we came across, and I'd never seen this before. It was absolutely, my jaw hit my desk with a loud, <laughs> audible thunk. It's only when you go on these real deep dives into something specific. Oh, my God. <laughs> so we came across the Dwaro Scholar. Uh, if you check out this website, it's incredibly cool. It's called the Dwaro Scholar. Basically, this guy named Roy, a.k.a. the Dwaro Scholar, who also has a Patreon and does intense work, has taken all that Tolkien dwarvish that was actually written by Tolkien and created an insane body of work that is a 1,300-page dictionary and lists of over a 1,000 dwarven names. Like, it just goes on and on and on. He completed the language. He turned it into a fully realized language. Yeah. And and really drew from the same places that Tolkien got inspiration for his dwarven language. So, 
uh, there's basically a table. You can use this table to start developing your own dwarven names. So we actually borrowed a list of clan names from the subreddit rd100 to flesh out our list of clan names. And then we borrowed a lot of words from the Dwaro Scholar to kind of get the rest of our names and our levels kind of translated. So let's uh, let's talk Test about... it out. Yeah, let's try one of these names out. So using these lists, we came up with the name Onan Ubhar Kidim Shurfoot. Sounds suitably dwarven. I dig it. <laughs> and uh, Surefoot probably has a dwarven translation as well, but for the outside travels that Onan does, he uses Surefoot. Yeah, so you could go by Onan Surefoot, but if you're talking to another dwarf, then you would go by your full name. Anyway, yeah, so we'll have that completed and put on our Patreon for you to use when you're coming up with some names, if you like. Yeah, use that table. All right. On to the Temple of Inspired Hands. This is the Temple of Inspired Hands, where amazing products and revolutionary ideas are brought to light. All right, so this segment isn't about paid advertisements, as we have none so far. We are not making money from talking. (laughs) (laughs) But we wanted to focus on a really cool product that Die Hard Dice puts out. We have personally ordered from Die Hard Dice. Our friends and players in some of our games have ordered them. And we felt it was pretty appropriate for this episode because they have super sexy metal dice. And they all feel like super weighty and hefty and satisfying to roll. And they fit with that dwarven theme. Absolutely. They, they even have a extra hefty one, Dire D20 size, they call it. They have both traditional and plastic and metal dice, but specifically their metal ones are a thing of beauty. Yeah, and 30 to 50 bucks will get you a set, and you can buy additional ones in case you're a rogue that constantly has to borrow D6s every (laughs) time you attempt to land a sneak attack. So they have one set specifically called their Forge Dice. They come in gold, copper, steel, and silver. They have beveled edges, and they look gnarly. You could do some damage with those suckers. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And they also have a a series called Ancient Finishes that looks about as old as your dwarf character is. Old and grizzled and tarnished. So if you really want to get into the feel of a dwarf, get some of these dice. And if you do buy metal dice, don't forget rolling trays because these will fuck up your table. (laughs) Don't play on glass. Yeah. (laughs) Your glass coffee table is dead. I don't know who is, but bad idea either way. So it was created by a husband and wife team, this company, and the husband was an old school tabletop gamer that found a set of metal dice, and it reminded him of everything he loved about tabletop gaming, and that's what the initial inspiration was. That's cool. Yeah, now they LARP with their kids, they play tabletop campaigns and board games, they're just right back into that whole nerdy life. That always seems to be the way it goes. You leave it for a while, and then it just comes back like a good rash. (laughs) And uh, now they're working on it in their spare time after their kids go to bed, but they want to turn it into something huge. So chances are you may have already heard of Die Hard Dice. We just wanted to spotlight them a little bit. In the event you aren't aware of the awesome job that Die Hard Dice has been doing in the D&D world, they are known for ridiculously killer service. Like they go 
all out, and we can personally attest to that, including dropping bonus gift dice every once in a while. I don't nice. know if that's common practice, but I think uh, three for three in our world has been uh, <laughs> a pretty pretty solid track record of just sending fast, super great dice, super yeah. high quality. Yeah, they really care. They do like handwritten notes and they do... Yeah, it's fantastic work that they've been doing. Tons so, of good reviews. So thank you very much to Die Hard Dice. And I think that about wraps it up for today. Yeah. Hopefully your minds are swirling with dwarven goodies. Fat and full and juicy and jiggling. <laughs> and <laughs> whatever comes out of your brain, uh, go ahead and send it back to us. Yeah, we would love to hear from you. Uh, follow us at Hook and Chance on Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, Discord, Reddit. Thanks to Tabletop Audio for all of the sound effects you've heard. Thanks for listening and play, play great, great games. games. <laughs> or perish. <laughs> You're real weird, you know that? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>